High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten stories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another chapter in our ongoing series, Fake News, Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. Great films of the silent years. This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip. It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood. Babylon. Today, we will finally tackle one of the most infamous stories from Hollywood's first decades. That of Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. The biggest, no pun intended, comic film star of the 19-teens. Arbuckle's story is intertwined with the story of Virginia Rappe, a fashion designer and actress who died after attending a party in Arbuckle's hotel room over Labor Day weekend, 1921. Here are excerpts from the version of this story told in Hollywood Babylon. Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was a hefty plumber's helper discovered by Max Sennett in 1913 when he came to unclog the comedy producer's drain. Virginia Rappe, a lovely brunette model from Chicago, 
went to work on Senate's lot, taking minor parts. She also did her share of sleeping around and gave half the company crabs. This epidemic so shocked Senate that he closed down his studio and had it fumigated. Virginia was forgiven, however, and soon started going steady with veteran Senate director Henry Pathé Lerman. Arbuckle had his roving eye on Virginia for some time. He insisted that his friend, Bambina Maud Delmont, bring her to a party, celebrating his new three-year, $3 million contract with Paramount. Fatty loved liquor and ladies. The more, the merrier. Arriving in the Bay City late Saturday night, Arbuckle checked into the luxurious Hotel St. Francis. On Labor Day afternoon, Monday, September 5th, 1921, the party was still going strong. Virginia and the other girls were downing gin-laced orange blossoms. At about a quarter after three, Arbuckle, flapping around in pajamas and a bathrobe, grabbed Virginia and steered the tipsy model to the bedroom of Suite 1221. He gave the revelers his famous leering wink, saying, quote, This is the chance I've waited for, for a long time, and locked the door. Showgirl Alice Blake found Virginia nearly nude on the disordered bed, writhing in pain and moaning, quote, I'm dying, I'm dying, he hurt me. Virginia was only able to whisper to a nurse in the exclusive Pine Street Hospital where she was taken, quote, Fatty Arbuckle did this to me. Please see that he doesn't get away with it before sinking into a coma. Virginia Rappay died age 25. The cause of her death almost went undiscovered. The San Francisco deputy coroner, Michael Brown, discovered the beginning of a frantic cover-up. He arrived at the hospital just in time to see an orderly emerge from an elevator and head for the hospital's incinerator with a glass jar containing Virginia's injured female organs. He requisitioned the organs from the reluctant doctor so that he could conduct his own examination. Thus, it was revealed that Virginia's bladder had been ruptured by some form of violence, which led to her death by peritonitis. The rumors flew of a hideously unnatural rape. Arbuckle, enraged at his drunken impotence, had ravaged Virginia with a Coca-Cola bottle or a champagne bottle, then had repeated the act with a jagged piece of ice. Or wasn't it common knowledge that Arbuckle was exceptionally well endowed? Or was it just a question of 266 pounds too much of fatty, flattening Virginia in a flying leap? What was certain was a leap in circulation. The tabloids had a field day printing insinuations about Arbuckle's bottle party. After much conflicting testimony, the jury favored acquitting Arbuckle by 10 to 2 after 43 hours of deliberation. A mistrial was declared. A second trial jury went 10 to 2 for conviction and was dismissed. Arbuckle was acquitted in a third trial ending April 12, 1922, largely due to incredibly confused testimony by 40 witnesses, mostly drunk at the time of the incident, and the lack of specific evidence, such as a bloody bottle. Fatty was free, but not forgiven. Paramount canceled Arbuckle's $3 million contract. Arbuckle was banned from acting. Only a few friends, like Buster Keaton, remained faithful. And in his forced retirement, Arbuckle took to drinking heavily. Bottles seemed to haunt him. In 1931, Fatty was arrested in Hollywood for drunk driving. As the traffic cop approached, Fatty flung a bottle from the car, laughing, quote, There goes the evidence. Was he thinking of another bottle that went sailing out of the 12th floor window of the Hotel St. Francis on Labor Day 1921? 
broke and broken. He died at 46 in New York, June 28, 1933. Poor Fatty. I quoted Anger at length here because his chapter on Roscoe Arbuckle is amongst the most notorious in Hollywood Babylon and perhaps the best example of Anger's insidious gift for planting seeds of speculation about real events in a way that makes his suggested shadow story seem as plausible as the on-the-record facts. The dark genius of Anger's telling of the Arbuckle story comes in the repeated use of the word bottle. He mentions both a Coca-Cola bottle and a champagne bottle as rumored implements of violence against Virginia used by Arbuckle. He notes that tabloids referred to the bootleg gin fest in the hotel room as a quote-unquote bottle party. Arbuckle was ultimately acquitted, Anger writes, due to the quote, lack of specific evidence, such as a bloody bottle, an outcome which the writer implies the comic jokingly referenced when pulled over for drunk driving years later. Even Anger's conclusion that, quote, bottles seemed to haunt him was doubled down in a photo caption reading, fatty, haunted by bottles. Thus, while stating the facts of the case, that Arbuckle was acquitted of raping and murdering Virginia Rappay after three trials, because there was no substantive evidence that he was guilty, and even concluding with words that are literally empathetic to Arbuckle, although probably intended to be ironic, Anger puts a grotesque theory of Arbuckle's guilt in his readers' minds, first clearly branded as a rumor, but then repeated over and over again through different types of insinuation. Anger thus literally says Arbuckle was innocent while implying that he secretly got away with rape and murder. The so-called Fatty Arbuckle scandal became what it became because the newspapers of the time sunk their teeth into it and wouldn't let go. The collective media told a number of different versions of the story. Sometimes it was a dark fairy tale in which Virginia was a good girl, lured by Fatty's big bad wolf. Sometimes she was a bad girl who took the low road of chasing fame and got what she deserved. This second version became useful for the reformers who had already been agitating to levy some kind of censorship on the film industry as it revealed Hollywood to be a cesspool. In the end, perhaps in a knee-jerk reaction against all of the consequences to creative freedom that followed the scandal, the version that survived to dominate most written film history either essentially omits the point of view of Virginia Rappay or dismisses her as a prostitute or the equivalent, while accusing Maude Delmont, an acquaintance of Virginia's who sat by her side from the moment of the onset of her illness until the end of her life, of being a scheming criminal who manufactured the allegations of assault against Arbuckle and thereby created the scandal that ruined a totally innocent man's career. 
Today, we will take a look at the Arbuckle case, with as objective a lens as possible, to interrogate both Anger's version of Arbuckle as a victim of bad press who was nonetheless haunted by an implied weapon of rape and murder, and also the predominant narrative of Arbuckle as a victim of the wilds of what one book I read by a female author referred to as an evil woman. Join us, won't you, for the story of Virginia Rappay and Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Contrary to his fat man stereotype-invoking introduction in Hollywood Babylon, Roscoe Arbuckle was not a plumber. He was, like so many stars and wannabes of Hollywood's first couple of generations, a self-made man whose journey to the big screen began when he was abandoned by his father. When his mother died, 12-year-old Roscoe was put on a train to Watsonville, on the central California coast, where his dad supposedly owned a hotel. When he got there, Roscoe learned that his father had sold the hotel and disappeared. The hotel staff took pity on the kid and gave him room and board in exchange for some work around the place. Soon, he was singing in the dining hall for tips. A year later, Roscoe's father reappeared, and the boy went to live with him and his new family. But the now 13-year-old still entered every amateur singing contest he could find. He needed a respite from home, where his alcoholic father regularly beat him, once almost killing him by choking him and bashing his head against a tree. At 16, Arbuckle left home to work as a professional singer. One of his frequent gigs had him performing illustrated songs, where he would sing a popular song while standing in front of a semi-narrative slideshow of paintings or photographs. This led to vaudeville, where Arbuckle began using his body, already large at age 18, as a source of comedy. Three years later, Arbuckle married a chorus girl named Minta Durfee in a ceremony that was woven into a performance at the theater where both worked in Long Beach, south of LA. Durfee's family had money, and when theatrical work became scarce for the couple, they moved in with her parents. In 1909, with no other source of income, Roscoe began appearing in movies. He kept this work secret from his wife at first, knowing that Minta, like many stage performers, looked down on movies as the lowest of the low arts. It isn't show business, Roscoe lamented at the time, adding, I'm ashamed of this kind of work, but we need the money. In the spring of 1913, at the recommendation of his nephew, Al St. John, Arbuckle put on his best suit and went to Keystone Studios in Silver Lake to ask for a job. Not only was he not a plumber's assistant, but he had already been appearing on screen for four years. As a demonstration of his talents, Roscoe took a trick fall down the stairs and bounced right back up, unscathed. He was signed on the spot to a contract that would pay $3 a day. 
Soon, Roscoe was regularly appearing in Max Sennett's movies, opposite Sennett's girlfriend and leading lady, Mabel Normand. Mabel described Roscoe's physique as, quote, not soggy fat, but hard as nails. But the Fatty Arbuckle persona was about more than his actual weight or body composition. It was about the fat man as a symbol for the hungry man, an exaggeration of every person that chases pleasure and, more often than not, falls on his or her face. Roscoe was first billed as Fatty in Fatty's Day Off in 1913, which also starred Arbuckle's wife, Minta. The Fatty films were big hits, appealing to young people as well as their parents, and Roscoe became one of the first movie stars. The brand new fan magazines began to swell with stories about his off-screen life, which were often exaggerated to blur the line between the portly comic's real life and the chaos and fun-loving consumption he represented on screen. His meals were often itemized in news reports, such as one which claimed for a breakfast in Philadelphia, he ate fruit, cereal, steak, potatoes, six eggs on toast, three cups of coffee, and buttered rolls. It was true that Roscoe liked to eat, and he spent money like there was no tomorrow. He also drank, preferring to hit the town with his entourage of male friends than to stay at home with his wife. But he was also focused enough to take charge of his own career. Many of Fatty's early films were directed by Henry Lehrman, who was nicknamed Pathé, after everyone found out that he had lied about having been a bigwig at Pathé Studios in France. When Lerman left Keystone, Roscoe started writing and directing his own films. Within just a couple of years in movies, Arbuckle had achieved a pinnacle of success that was previously unimaginable. Though he made the most of his income and chased pleasure in all sorts of ways, he remained unsatisfied and fearful. When one reporter asked him about the worst aspect of acting, Arbuckle said it was fame. Once they arrive, he said of stars, there isn't much to do but leave again. The public begins to criticize and pick flaws and expect him to better his own standard. And it is a tremendous strain. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you can explore incredible movies, streaming anytime, anywhere. This month in U.S. theaters, Mubi is releasing a new documentary from Academy Award winner Kevin McDonald, High and Low, John Galliano. It's charting the rise and fall story of the fashion designer John Galliano, who was one of the most successful names in couture until his career abruptly ended in 2011. Featuring conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Anna Wintour, and more. High and Low, John Galliano is coming to select theaters across the U.S. on March 8th. For showtimes and tickets, visit Mubi.com slash high and low. And to stream the best of cinema, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. 
That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Y-M-R-T for a whole month of great cinema for free. In 1916, Arbuckle at least found a partner who could make the strain monetarily worthwhile. In Joseph Skank, who masterminded a deal that would give Arbuckle total creative control over his films and up his salary by seven times what he was making at Keystone. This deal would have Arbuckle running his own production company within the auspices of Paramount Pictures, which would mean leaving Senate and the company that had given Arbuckle his start behind. Arbuckle happily went after the money, and Senate never forgave him. Neither did Minta Durfee, who had a low opinion of Skank and his prioritizing of money over all else. Within a year after Arbuckle hooked up with Skank, Arbuckle and Durfee, who had been drifting apart for a while, had quietly separated. The pair worked out an agreement in which they would live separate lives but not file for divorce, and Minta would collect alimony to pretend to the press that she and Arbuckle were still married. It was assumed that a star as big as Arbuckle couldn't survive a public divorce. By 1920, about a decade after motion pictures began to be shot in Los Angeles, just five years after The Birth of a Nation proved the possible profitability of the feature film, the movie industry was the fourth largest in the nation. Paramount and its sister company, Famous Players Lasky, had become the most profitable studio in Hollywood. But that summer, the economy began to trend downward, and movie revenues slipped in turn. There were nationwide calls for some kind of top-down regulation of the movies, coming from the same kinds of organizations, women's clubs, churches, which had recently successfully pushed for the passage of prohibition. One so-called Christian lobbyist, who had been instrumental in securing the 18th Amendment, Wilbur F. Crafts, declared the movies should be the next target of his movement, being that the, quote, sex thrill was the great objective of most of the movies he had seen. And also, it was an industry controlled by, as he put it, the devil and 500 non-Christian Jews. In the backlash against the cultural changes that had been in effect since the First World War began, once alcohol was supposedly conquered, the next logical scapegoat was the movies. Studio chiefs, already feeling the heat for their ethnicity and religion, began to worry that if anyone knew the truth about Hollywood, that the sex, violence, and debauchery occasionally depicted in movies was tame compared to the party lives of certain movie stars, then the movie version of Prohibition would soon be at hand. Virginia Rappe and Roscoe Arbuckle had much in common. She was orphaned at age 11 and began her showbiz career five years later as a model in Chicago. Within a year, Virginia was making news. In a 1908 Chicago Tribune profile, she was described as unreservedly beautiful. 
Five years later, another Chicago publication held Virginia up as an example to girls everywhere with no family support to show that they could make something of themselves all by themselves. In the intervening years, Virginia had become as close to a modern supermodel as existed in very early 20th century America. She traveled from city to city, appearing at fashion shows at major department stores. Newspapers reported on her salary and her comings and goings, and spread her lifestyle advice to young women. By 1914, she was designing her own fashion line, and her avant-garde creations, like the web-like spider hat and her Lusitania-era peace hat, were reported on extensively. Though her initial burst of fame was not much more substantial than that of today's pretty girls who invite fascination for being pretty, her clothing creations were taken seriously. One publication commended her for having, quote, lifted fashion designing to the plane of fine art. And there was an air of feminism to her media presence. In one article, she advocated that instead of competing with one another for typing jobs, young ladies should use their creativity to offer their services as personal shoppers to wealthy households. In another, she was photographed in a tuxedo jacket and recommended that readers dress to suit their own personalities, whatever that might mean. After a few years in the high society circle in San Francisco, Virginia moved to Los Angeles. In 1917, Virginia was cast in her first film, Paradise Garden. Then she began dating Henry Pathé Lerman, who was still working at Keystone Studios. There, Lerman was directing comedy shorts starring the likes of Charlie Chaplin, Mabel Normand, who we'll talk about more next week, and Fatty Arbuckle. With Lerman as her boyfriend and mentor, Virginia began appearing in Keystone comedies. After two and a half years, the romance waned, just as Lerman was falling on hard times professionally. He left Hollywood for New York in 1921. Without Lerman, Virginia struggled to find work in films. That summer, Virginia turned 30 and found that her careers as a model, designer, and actress were not going anywhere good. Virginia came to San Francisco that Labor Day weekend at the invitation of her friend Alfred Seneker, a film publicist. The two of them and another woman Seneca's friend, Maude Delmont, drove up and checked into the Palace Hotel on Sunday evening. In the lobby of the hotel the next day, a ladies' clothing salesman named Ira Fort Louis spotted Virginia and took note of her. That afternoon, he went to Arbuckle's suite at the invitation of Roscoe's friend, Fred Fishback. Fort Louis asked the assembled men if they knew Virginia, and they all said that they did. Fishback then called the palace and asked that the message be given to Virginia that she should stop by the party. Virginia told her friends, I'll go up there and if the party is a bloomer, I'll be back in 20 minutes. Instead, shortly after arriving at the party around noon, Virginia called Maud and told her to come over. The two women were enjoying themselves, drinking gin, orange blossoms, and scotch, 
when Seneca arrived a little bit later. He offered to drive them home, but they didn't want to leave. After a little less than three hours, Virginia knocked on the door of the bathroom in room 1221. Maud was inside with a male party guest and told Virginia that she couldn't come in. So Virginia crossed into the adjacent room, 1219, Arbuckle's bedroom, to use the bathroom there. After Virginia entered, Roscoe went into the room and locked the door behind him. Virginia awoke around midnight in a different bed, in a different room, a wrenching pain in her gut. Maud Delmont, a woman she had met barely two days earlier, sat at her bedside. At Delmont's call, a doctor appeared and shot Virginia up with morphine. He gave her a catheter and told Delmont that Virginia just needed to rest. Unsatisfied, Delmont called another doctor who diagnosed Virginia with alcohol poisoning. No one thought she was in mortal danger. But days later, Virginia was not better. She was finally transferred to a nearby sanitarium, where the doctor in charge, Francis Wakefield, specialized in gynecology. It remains an open question as to why Virginia was not taken to a hospital right away, but instead sequestered away in a hotel room for three days after the initial signs that she was unwell. Olive Thomas had to wait a matter of hours before she was taken to a hospital, and that seemed suspicious. That the people around Virginia thought it better that she stay cooped up in a hotel rather than go to a medical facility right away definitely made it look like they had something to hide. At the sanitarium, Virginia was diagnosed with peritonitis, an infection of the abdominal lining, which doctors suspected had been caused by a ruptured fallopian tube or bladder. After a day in the sanitarium, the 30-year-old Repay died. A Dr. Rumwell, who had been treating Virginia at the sanitarium, and a Dr. Ophuls, an autopsy surgeon, examined the body post-mortem and found two bruises on her right arm, two bruises on her thighs, and no evidence she had been sexually assaulted. There was evidence that her kidneys had failed first, and then her bladder had been perforated. This autopsy was conducted before the coroner's office was notified of Rapay's death, and the controversy over the order of events produced reports such as the one put forward in Hollywood Babylon, contending that these doctors attempted to hide or destroy Virginia's reproductive organs. They did remove the organs and put them in a jar so that they could be examined under a microscope. San Francisco Deputy Coroner Michael Brown, posited as a hero in Hollywood Babylon for having discovered Ophuls and Rumwell's alleged plan to destroy the evidence in the nick of time, did go to the sanitarium when an attendant at the sanitarium called the coroner's office to ask when they were going to pick up the body for an autopsy. At the sanitarium, Brown met with Rumwell and Ophuls, 
who admitted they had performed an unofficial autopsy, but claimed they had tried to contact the coroner and hadn't been able to reach him. The jar of organs was eventually brought into court, and Brown took the stand to identify them. If Brown had seen Rumwell and Ophuls attempting to smuggle Virginia's organs, as Anger claims, he didn't testify to such. Or if he did, it didn't make it into the newspapers of the day. In any case, Brown's office immediately conducted a second autopsy, and they found a total of 11 small bruises on the body and evidence of chronic inflammation of the bladder. The coroner suspected that the bladder had been punctured, quote, by some external force. Initially, there were two basic conflicting stories. A number of women who were at the party, including Ma Delmont and a socialite-turned-showgirl named Alice Blake, claimed that Arbuckle had entered the room Virginia was in and had closed the door. They were alone together for half an hour, and finally Delmont banged on the door, and then he opened it. At that point, they said, Virginia could be heard wailing. I am dying! I am dying! Arbuckle then supposedly said to Black and Delmont, Go in and get her dressed and take her back to the palace. She makes too much noise. In the room, Delmont said she found Virginia writhing on a bed that was totally soaking wet. Virginia flung off her torn clothing and, according to Delmont, and with Arbuckle standing right there, she made an accusation. He did it. I know he did it. I have been hurt. I'm dying. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, read a book, show up for a friend? I think I would use my extra hour to sleep an hour later, or maybe spend more time at the gym. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. I recently started seeing a new therapist with the explicit goal of trying to figure out what I want in the short term and the long term. I've been in fight-or-flight mode for so long that I've kind of lost track of any goals or ambition that I once had. A therapist can be there for you in times of crisis, even if you have, like me, rather diffuse needs. Either way, a therapist can help you understand the way that you feel and offer strategies for moving forward. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, so you don't have to sit in traffic to get to your appointment. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com ymrt today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, 
dot com slash YMRT. On the day after Labor Day, while Virginia was still sick, Arbuckle had boarded a steamship bound for Los Angeles. On board the boat, he met a 21-year-old actress named Doris Dean, who would become his second wife. Roscoe found out about Virginia's death from an L.A. Times reporter who showed up at his L.A. mansion for an impromptu interview. Arbuckle claimed that he had never been alone with Virginia, and that totally spontaneously, quote, Miss Rappay became hysterical and complained she could not breathe and began to tear her clothes off. When the reporter left, Arbuckle called his business partner, Joseph Skank. Skank called a midnight meeting at Grauman's Million Dollar Theater with Lowell Sherman and Fred Fishback, two of Arbuckle's friends who had been staying with him at the hotel, and Virginia's friend, Al Seneker. No one knows for sure what was discussed at this meeting, but it seems likely the goal was for all four men to make sure they were telling the same version of events. This would include Seneker, who would have had no reason to falsely defend Arbuckle unless incentivized to do so at this meeting. It certainly looked like Seneker was in on a cover-up a few days later when the LAPD searched his home and found the torn clothing that Virginia had been wearing at the party, which Al claimed he had taken from the scene because he thought they would make good rags for polishing his car. This is where I should note that it's not always easy to tell when someone involved in this case was lying or when the newspapers were printing false information, or a combination of the two. For instance, in one article, Arbuckle was quoted as saying he had never met Virginia before Labor Day, which Arbuckle later was forced to admit was false, and Virginia was said to have been just 23 at the time of death, which was seven years false. A younger age of death made for a better victim in the media narrative. But it was not Arbuckle's false statements that got him in trouble so much as his lawyer's instructions that he not say anything at all when he was questioned by the San Francisco DA. The DA already had sworn statements from Blake, Delmont, and another party attendee, Zay Prevost, claiming Arbuckle assaulted Rappay. Delmont's version would form the basis of the DA's case. This version had Arbuckle pulling Virginia aside with the line, I have been trying to get you for five years. So, in other words, the alleged attack was premeditated. Though Arbuckle had already told the San Francisco Police Department the lie that he and Virginia had not ever been alone together, in his official interrogation, he followed his lawyer's orders by pleading the fifth refusing to even dispute the testimony that had been filed against him. And so, the DA charged him with murder, or more precisely, a killing committed in the perpetration of, or attempt to perpetrate, rape. To the throng of reporters waiting for him back at the San Francisco City Jail, Arbuckle explained his strategy. Nothing I could say now would do any good. Everything I've said in the past seems to have been distorted and made to appear against me. He was right. With no one sure at that moment what had really happened, 
The newspapers initially decided that it made a better story if Fatty was a monster and Virginia an innocent victim. It was unlucky for Arbuckle that the spelling of Virginia's last name was so similar to the word rape, which allowed that act to hang in the minds of readers, even if reporters were only forwarding the known facts of the case. Never mind that her first name contained in it the word virgin. Photographs that were run of Virginia were often several years old, from her modeling days, thus emphasizing her youth and vulnerability. She was almost always called an actress, and her ingenious fashion design work was downplayed. Soon, public opinion soured on the famous comedian. By the time he had been charged, Fatty Arbuckle movies were banned in San Francisco. A couple of weeks later, a riot broke out at an Arbuckle screening in Wyoming, where local cowboys actually shot guns at the screen. Paramount chief Adolf Zucker wrote to William Randolph Hearst, asking him to give Arbuckle a break in his newspapers. Hearst replied, Well, do the best I can, but it is difficult to keep news out of a newspaper. In fact, at the time, Hearst was angry at Zucker for what he felt was mismanagement of the funds Hearst had fed to Paramount related to the production company he had set up for Marion Davies. And at least one historian believes Hearst enacted revenge by pushing a full-force anti-Arbuckle narrative through his papers nationwide. Interestingly, I haven't seen any of the articles noted by Anger in which the revels at the St. Francis were referred to as a bottle party. I have, however, seen many newspaper articles referring to it as an orgy. Zucker and Paramount did not stand by their star for long. Less than two weeks after Arbuckle was arrested, Paramount took him off of their payroll. Meanwhile, enterprising theater owners dug up the few films in which Virginia Rappe had appeared and revived them, giving the dead girl star billing. This sent a powerful mixed message. While newspapers were bashing Arbuckle as a Falstaffian villain and a working-class schmo who brought with him to Hollywood low morals unfit for wealth and fame, as well as demonizing Hollywood and holding up Virginia Rappe as an example of what could happen to girls who traveled west looking for fame, at the same time, in death, she was a much bigger movie star than she had been in life. A grand jury was convened to hear testimony from the coroner and other witnesses to determine whether or not Arbuckle would be indicted. Here, Delmont repeated her version of events, crucially recalling that Virginia had directly accused Arbuckle immediately after her troubles began, although Delmont changed her story as to how Arbuckle and Rappé ended up in the same room together. Where first she had said Roscoe had pushed his way in, now she made their pairing off seem initially consensual. Delmont also admitted that she had drunk 
eight or ten whiskeys at the hotel party before Virginia fell ill. Al Seneker testified that the day after the party, Virginia had told him, Roscoe hurt me. Two nurses who had attended to Virginia in the days before she died offered contradictory testimony, with one, Vera Cumberland, saying Virginia had said she and Arbuckle had been intimate, and the other claiming that Virginia had admitted she was dealing with internal trouble for six weeks. Both nurses said Virginia didn't want Henry Lerman to find out that she had been at the party. Lerman, incidentally, had been telling the press that he was sure Arbuckle was guilty, adding that he thought the actor was, quote, the result of ignorance and too much money. I directed him for a year and a half, and I had to warn him to keep out of the women's dressing rooms. There are some people who are a disgrace to the film business. They should be driven out. I am no saint, but I have never attended one of their parties. Whether Virginia felt guilty for a consensual encounter with Arbuckle, or she was ashamed of a sexual assault, is unclear. One interesting piece of information that got no scrutiny whatsoever was that Nurse Cumberland admitted that she had withdrawn herself from Rappé's care before she died, saying only, My conscience didn't permit me to handle the case further, because in any opinion, it had been handled negligently. One of the two doctors who had autopsied Rappé declared that he believed Rappé's bladder would only have burst due to, quote, some force. When asked to explain, he said, finger pressure. Arbuckle declined to testify. The coroner repeated the phrase, some force, in his inquest verdict, which recommended an indictment for manslaughter. And yet, the district attorney decided to charge Arbuckle not with the less severe crime of manslaughter, but with full-on murder. So a hearing followed to determine if the state had enough evidence to support that charge. This hearing, open to the public, was packed with female spectators who occupied every available seat with hundreds left standing in the hallway waiting their turn. For the most part, these female spectators seemed to be Fatty Arbuckle fans. And it appeared that part of their fascination was seeing Arbuckle in the flesh. He appeared in court every day, surrounded by his estranged wife, Minta, from whom only his closest associates knew he was estranged, and Minta's mother. On the second day of testimony, Al Seneker dropped a bizarre bombshell on the stand that Arbuckle had told him the morning after the party that he had, quote, placed a piece of ice on Miss Rappay. When asked to clarify, Seneca admitted that Arbuckle meant he had inserted the piece of ice inside Virginia. When asked to repeat Arbuckle's exact words, Seneca was too embarrassed to repeat them out loud, so he wrote them down, and the assistant DA read them aloud. 
The word Arbuckle had used was snatch. He said he had put a piece of ice in Virginia Rappé's snatch. The headlines about this testimony read, Witness testifies Arbuckle confessed he tortured actress. In response, Arbuckle's attorney alleged that Seneca had stolen Rappé's ripped clothes as part of a blackmail scheme he was cooking up with Maude Delmont. This went nowhere, and then witness Zay Prevost testified that she knew about the ice thing too. The prosecution then called a hotel maid, who testified that she had heard a woman from behind the closed door of Arbuckle's suite scream, no, and that she heard a man scream back, shut up. After that, the prosecution closed their case without calling Maude Delmont to the stand, which flabbergasted the defense as they had been preparing to knock down Delmont's version of events. In response, the defense declined to call a single witness to the stand. This hearing had no jury, and the verdict would be handed down by a single judge who declared that Seneca was a worthless witness and that the only testimony that he believed came from the eavesdropping maid. And yet, he wasn't convinced that what the maid overheard was in fact sexual assault. He declared that Arbuckle would be tried for manslaughter and not murder. This was a victory for Arbuckle, and the female spectators in the courtroom cheered him on. By this time, newspapers were shading their coverage of Rappé as something other than an innocent victim. They talked of her supposed pleasure tour of Europe and made her drive to reinvent herself independently seem pathetic rather than inspirational. Ten years ago, any girl who would go to a man's room in a hotel, party or no party, would have thrown away her good name the instant the fact of her visit was known one Hearst columnist wrote, adding that what had changed in the ensuing decade was the power of Hollywood celebrity. Your daughter or my daughter would probably have jumped at the chance to meet this man, who is said to be using his money and his influence and his celebrity to hush the whole matter up. Thus, Hearst managed to plant the idea that both parties involved were corrupt. Virginia could be dismissed as a tragic case of a fallen girl. And it was a cultural assumption that a fallen woman couldn't be raped. Meanwhile, the seed was planted for readers to believe that Arbuckle, even if innocent of assault, was guilty of something and thus deserved punishment. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. It's taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 
25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com remember. That's netsuite.com remember to get your own KPI checklist, netsuite.com remember. Only after all of this was Arbuckle's actual first trial allowed to proceed. Arbuckle fired the attorney who wouldn't let him speak up to defend himself and assembled a crew of five lawyers, the original dream team. The trial finally began on November 18th, over two months after Virginia's death. Many of the witnesses were repeated from the previous hearings, but there was some new information offered. Party attendees Alice Blake and Zay Prevost both now said that they heard Virginia say only, I'm dying, and not, he hurt me. A security guard who had once worked for Virginia's old boyfriend, Henry Lerman, testified that two years earlier, Arbuckle had tried to bribe him to hand over the key to Virginia's dressing room. After once again writing down the word snatch rather than say it out loud, Seneker helped the defense by admitting that on other occasions, he had seen Virginia tear off her own clothes while drinking. After presenting forensic evidence that fingerprints on the door to the room where Virginia fell ill gave the impression that Arbuckle had slammed Virginia's hand against the door to prevent her from opening it and leaving, the prosecution rested. Again, they did not call Delmont to the stand, in part because the DA knew that days into Arbuckle's trial, Delmont would be arrested and charged with bigamy for seven years earlier, failing to divorce one husband before marrying another. The defense found another maid at the St. Francis, this one who said that on the day of the party, she had washed the door on which the alleged fingerprints had been found. In fact, Arbuckle had offered her a large tip to do so. They called a number of doctors, who testified that a bladder wouldn't need some force applied externally to rupture and could, in fact, do so on its own. They called other witnesses, who reiterated Seneca's claim that Virginia had been seen previously drunkenly tearing off her own clothes. Finally, Roscoe Arbuckle took the stand. He explained that he had entered his bedroom to change out of his dressing robe and into his regular clothes, and there he found Virginia on the floor of the bathroom, vomiting into the toilet. He said he picked her up and carried her to one of two twin beds in the room. He said he used the bathroom 
then came back to the bedroom and found that Virginia had rolled off the bed and was lying on the floor, moaning and clutching her stomach. He said he then immediately left the room to find Maud Delmont, but couldn't locate her right away. He said that when he, Delmont, and Prevost returned to the room, Virginia was sitting on the bed, tearing off her clothes. Arbuckle said he left the room and then came back and saw Delmont treating Virginia by applying ice to the outside of her body. He said he and Delmont argued about how to take care of the sick girl and that Delmont asked him to leave, to which Arbuckle said, Shut up or I'll throw you out the window, and then left the room. He denied Seneca's ice story. On cross-examination, he revealed little more. In four hours on the stand, Arbuckle had put forth a version of the story in which he was not a rapist or murderer, but merely a good host who had sought help for a sick party guest. The defense followed his appearance by reading a deposition given by a Chicago doctor, who claimed to have treated Virginia eight years earlier for chronic bladder problems. Then the defense rested, and the prosecution brought on a passel of witnesses who claimed Virginia had been healthy. In his closing arguments, the prosecutor put forth his theory of what had really happened in that hotel room. In essence, it was that Arbuckle threw Virginia on the bed and got on top of her with rape on his mind, but then, as he pressed his body on top of hers, her distended bladder had ruptured. In his closing arguments, Arbuckle's attorney countered that perhaps Virginia's bladder had burst due to the strain of vomiting. The jury went out to deliberate on Friday afternoon, and over the weekend, Arbuckle joked and performed magic tricks for the waiting reporters. At noon on Sunday, the jury declared they had reached an impasse. Ten members had voted for an acquittal, but two would not budge from their feeling that Roscoe Arbuckle was guilty. One of the holdouts was a woman, one of four females on the panel, who spoke out in the following days about the harassment and pressure exerted on her by male members of the jury who tried to get her to change her vote. There is no place for a woman on the jury, she said. Any woman is a fool to even get on one if she can possibly get out of serving. The general attitude and language of the men is offensive to a woman. This led to a number of newspaper editorials declaring that women should be barred from serving on juries, particularly when it came to a case of a man accused of so-called immorality. In other words, men accused of mistreating a woman should only be judged by other men because women could be biased by the fact that they thought the man's behavior sounded horrible. The second trial got underway in January 1922. This time, the jury would be composed of 11 men and one woman. The usual suspects took the witness stand yet again, but they did not all give the same testimony. This time, Alice Blake answered nearly every question with, I don't recall, and Arbuckle's buddy Fred Fishback also failed to remember details he had testified to previously. Zay Prevost 
declared she had been threatened by the DA and coerced into signing her original sworn statement. Meanwhile, the defense found three new witnesses to testify about Rappé's habit of drunkenly ripping off her own clothes. Arbuckle did not take the stand this time. The jury began deliberation on February 1st. On February 3rd, they announced that they were deadlocked. This time, it was 10 to 2 in favor of conviction. Two men had been the holdouts, and this time, they didn't make statements to the press. Six weeks later, yet another jury was selected, consisting of eight men and four women. The third trial proceeded with the testimony of the Alice Blakes, etc. The prosecution saved their new material for last. The secretary of the sanitarium where Rappé had died recalled that Virginia had argued that she shouldn't have to pay her own bill because Arbuckle was responsible for her sickness. The secretary then repeated what she said Virginia had told her she remembered of the party. What she remembered was this. Arbuckle took me by the arm and threw me on the bed and put his weight on me. And after that, I do not know what happened next. The defense, of course, pressed the secretary as to why she hadn't told this story previously. She said she had only been subpoenaed two days earlier. The defense also found some new witnesses. Their goal this time was to impugn Virginia Rappé as a slut with a history of bladder problems. They brought in a Chicago nurse to testify that Rappé had miscarried a child due to bladder sickness in 1910. Meanwhile, a self-proclaimed midwife gave a deposition in which she said she had attended to four pregnancies of Rappé's between 1908 and 1910. Though she said a baby was born on the first occasion, the midwife's language heavily implied that Virginia had come to her each of these times in search of illegal abortions. The midwife also claimed to have firsthand experience of Virginia's bladder problems. The defense also found a Chicago doctor who claimed to have operated on Rappé's bladder in 1909. Finally, Arbuckle returned to the stand and told the same story he had told in his first trial. Arbuckle's defense team closed their case in keeping with its new strategy to suggest that Virginia Rappé was not the kind of girl who could be raped and that the loss of her life was not much of a loss at all. Virginia, said attorney Gavin McNabb, did, quote, not belong to the wifehood, the sisterhood, the motherhood of the world. In the two previous trials, the juries had deliberated for days. In the third trial, they came to their decision in five minutes. Roscoe Arbuckle was acquitted. Not only that, but the jury issued a statement that seemed too carefully prepared to have been composed during their five minutes of deliberation. It read, in part, Acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice has been done to him. He was manly throughout the case 
and told a straightforward story which we all believed. Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame. There is some speculation that since the jury could not have written this statement after coming to an organic not guilty verdict in the five minutes they spent deliberating, perhaps the statement was provided to them by the defense. And once you open up that possibility, it wouldn't be that much of a leap to imagine that the verdict itself was somehow arranged and or paid for by the defense. But even if the jury statement and the verdict were totally legit, the damage to Arbuckle's career had been done. He announced his intention to mount a comeback, but he didn't get a chance. The Hollywood of spring 1923 was extremely different from the Hollywood of the summer of 1921 when this whole mess started. The press surrounding the Arbuckle scandal had led to nationwide outcry against the film industry, which was painted as a lawless Wild West that was attempting to export its amoral worldview through the movies. By the time Arbuckle was acquitted, Will Hayes, after whom the Hayes Code, regulating sex and such on screen would eventually be named, had arrived in Hollywood to begin to establish the industry's self-regulation of vice, so as to avoid government censorship. We'll get into Hayes in a future episode, but suffice it to say, Arbuckle became both a pawn and a sacrificial lamb in Hayes' public relations campaign. Despite the fact that many of Arbuckle's fans stood by him and wanted him to return to movie screens, the industry in the form of the heads of Paramount and Will Hayes ceded to critics of Hollywood and made Arbuckle's comeback virtually impossible. In debt thanks to his high legal fees and owing much in back taxes to the IRS, Arbuckle found work in vaudeville. A year and a half after his acquittal, Minta Durfee filed for divorce. Roscoe no longer had a reputation that could be hurt by ending his marriage, and Minta had realized that the cash cow had run dry. Arbuckle married actress Doris Dean and began writing and directing comedy shorts, allowing his nephew, Al St. John, who appeared in some of his films, to take directorial credits. Arbuckle also worked behind the camera under the assumed name of Will B. Goodrich, which was suggested by Buster Keaton, one of the few Hollywood powers who stood by Roscoe throughout his struggles. A bit later, it became fashionable in Hollywood to decry Arbuckle's treatment, as Howard Hughes's uncle, writer-director Rupert Hughes, did in a rousing speech at a banquet in December 1925, which got a massive ovation from the assembled industry power brokers, none of whom dared to give Roscoe Arbuckle significant work under his own name. By 1931, Arbuckle was phoning in even the small jobs he was able to get under fake names. Louise Brooks, who starred in the Will B. Goodrich short, Windy Riley Goes to Hollywood, wrote that Arbuckle, quote, made no attempt to direct this picture. He sat in his chair, 
like a man dead. He finally appeared on screen again the following year in a short called Hey Pop, made for Warner Brothers, who allowed Arbuckle to appear in three movies that year. But these were merely comic shorts, released in an era when short films had almost totally been usurped by features. The following year, Arbuckle died, suffering a heart attack at the age of 46. The things that happened to Roscoe Arbuckle, his loss of his studio contract, the dragging of his name in the press, his inability to return to his previous life of luxury and creative freedom after his acquittal, is sort of equivalent to the stuff that's happening now, to the Harvey Weinsteins and Louis C.K.'s and other men who have been accused of a variety of sex crimes, with the crucial difference that Arbuckle actually had trials, was acquitted, and still was denied full redemption. Today, we seem as a society to be unsure what the correct punishment is for men who have abused their power but haven't or can't be tried for their alleged crimes, but we seem to have agreed that it's best for everyone if they just go away. In this climate, the Arbuckle case becomes even more complicated. In an era in which mainstream culture is suddenly open to talking about the fact that most women don't have an incentive to make up rape allegations and instead have for decades been scared off from telling their stories and or have not been believed, it seems like it's the right time to interrogate the old narrative that Fatty Arbuckle was completely innocent and railroaded for a crime he didn't commit. The problem is, this all happened almost 100 years ago, and there is no new evidence to examine. You don't want to let the present-day lens skew your vision of the past to the point that you accuse an innocent man of a crime that he was tried three times for and ultimately acquitted. That said, looking at this case for the first time in detail in over a decade, I'm less sure what happened in that hotel room than I've ever been. On the one hand, there were many witnesses for the defense who testified to Virginia's history of bladder problems. The Kenneth Anger implication that Virginia was raped with a bottle was A, not original. It had appeared first in a 1931 article in Time magazine, and then again in a pulpy paperback about Arbuckle published in 1962, and B, not backed up by any physical evidence. But Arbuckle lied many times, in the immediate aftermath of the party, and there were certainly no witnesses who shared his version of events in the hotel room. Plus, most defenses of Arbuckle that would emerge in the decades after Virginia's death involved some kind of impugning of her character, such as Anger's contention that she spread crabs to many men around the Senate studio, which, even if she did, wouldn't have been reason to fumigate the lot. Minta Durfee gave a lot of interviews in the 60s and 70s, and she doubled down on claims that Virginia was infected with VD, defending her ex-husband's supposed innocence by insisting that Virginia was a dirty girl who deserved to die. Durfee also spread rumors that Maude Delmont was a prostitute or madam, 
rumors which have been accepted as fact by even reputable writers, despite there being no evidence other than Durfee's gossip. As apparent as it is that justice was perverted by an out-of-control media and by Hollywood's decision to scapegoat one man in order to prevent the collapse of their business, it's equally apparent that no one really knows what happened to Virginia Rappé other than Virginia Rappé. And her reputation was unfairly maligned both during Arbuckle's trials and for decades after. But it's become difficult for me to buy the simplistic version of the story that contends that the dead woman and the female witnesses who testified against Arbuckle were telling lies in order to bring down a powerful man. Maybe there were nothing but victims in the Arbuckle case, but the narrative that Arbuckle was the biggest victim depends on discrediting the woman who died before she could coherently tell her own story. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editors are Sam Dingman and Jacob Smith. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Original music was composed for this season by Evan Viola. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guest, Gideon Yego, who read this week's excerpt from Hollywood Babylon. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode which include links to our sources. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you are a fan of this podcast, perhaps you'll also like my new book. It's called Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood. It comes out on November 13th, but you can pre-order it now at Amazon.com or HarperCollins.com. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.
You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.